0: I have never met you until this afternoon, and uh, had I met you, I would surely have asked this question. How much of Revolution Number no. 9 from the White Album yeah. was accidental?
1: Uh, well, it's like an action painting. You don't, Revolution Number no. 9 is the, the weird one, right? Mm-hmm. I had a lot of loops, tape loops, which is just a circle of tape. If people don't understand it, it repeats itself over and over. Had about 10 of them on different mono machines, all spinning at once with pencils and things holding them. I had a basic track, which was the end of the Revolution song, where we'd gone on and on and on and on. And I just played it sort of live into another tape and just brought them in on faders like you do as a DJ and brought them in like that. And it was accidental in that way. I think I did it twice, maybe. And the second one was the take. Mm -hmm. And the number nine, number nine, number nine was... uh, an engineer's voice you know they have test tapes to see that the tapes are all right mm-hmm. and the voice was saying this is uh, number nine megacycles so he was talking like that and i just like the way he said number nine so i just made a loop of him saying number nine and brought that in whenever i felt like it uh-huh. and uh 9th of october i'll be 105 and nine seems to be my number and it's the highest number in the universe, after that you go back to one.
2: Welcome to Paul or Nothing, the place to get all of your Paul, all of the time. Join me, your host Sam Wiles, as we discover the history, the music, and the man behind it all, Paul McCartney. To get in contact with the show, email us at paulmccartneypod at gmail.com. There's a fucking fly in here, bastard. Bonjour, guten Tag, Hola, Konnichiwa, and hello and welcome to Paul or Nothing, the place to get all of your Paul all of the time, including all spin-offs that perform really badly at the box office on opening weekend. I am, of course, your host, Sam Wiles, and today we will be driving the final nail into the maca-shaped coffin that is the Paul is dead conspiracy. About fucking time, too. Am I right? I mean, I can remember back when this show was first conceived, when I was compiling the original, the, you know, the original list of what bonus episodes that I could do for the show, and this must have been about 15 months ago now, at least, you know, from when I first started looking this crazy stuff up, and when I first listened to those conspiracy guys, and their Paul McCartney, Paul is Dead episode, which was fucking phenomenal, but unlike their show, I remember the general gist of all of this was going to be a, a simple, basic 90-minute examination into the conspiracy. Maybe a few humorous asides and oxymoronic brief, kind of in-depth look into the truth behind the origins of the whole affair. Which is kind of what we have done now and what we're going to be continuing with today. But... Nearly three and a half hours and two episodes out of a three-part miniseries later, we are finally at the Return of the King Battle of the Five Armies Part 3 of this motherfucker. Like, I am more than aware of the fact that there are loads of you stood or sat out there just begging me to do another classic album review and get this out of the way. But as annoyingly lengthy this side series has been for you, the listener, that will pale into comparison to my own frustrations as a content creator slash podcaster. I mean, this thing was supposed to be out of the way with and done by now even if i was to you know shuck all of my album review content responsibilities i should be at the very least by now going over more of paul's videography or rambling on about some obscure gig wings did in 72 which is what i will be doing that no one cares about but no the pandora's box that is paul is dead was sadly opened I swiftly saw that I was way in over my head, and I had to take responsibility for that and react accordingly, resulting in the three-parter that you are listening to right now. But anyway, without sounding too maudlin and unenthused, let's get this bastard over with. You know, in the best possible way. Hopefully you've already listened to the first two parts of this one-off mini-series on the Paul is Dead conspiracy, because, well, firstly because it would be really weird to start a series on the third one... Although that's what I did with the Jason Bourne films. I remember in Spain I saw the Bourne ultimatum without seeing the the, uh, previous two. And to Paul Greengrass's credit, I was actually caught up to speed rather well. But secondly, because this entire episode is going to be about knocking down what I've spent the first two parts of this series setting up. So it really is critical that you go back and listen to parts one and two. In those two episodes, we covered all the evidence that the Paul is Dead theory could offer up and I tried my very best to maintain a positively-leaning, unbiased, on-the-fence view of the whole things. We went through all the audio clues, both on records and Fall's real-world voice, his singing voice as well, clues on album covers, as well as a few quirky little side elements to the whole thing as well, which I did enjoy doing for episode one. And the conclusion that we drew from all of this evidence pointed to one actuality. The name of the game is that on a dark, dark night in a dark, dark town on a dark, dark road in 1966, James Paul McCartney fatally crashed his Austin Healey, possibly beheading himself, leaving the world one Macca short and the Beatles without a bassist. In response, the quintessential dark cabal of special interest groups ranging from the Illuminati lizard people right the way up to MI5 and the CIA all got together, sacrificed a few babies and decided that the best use of their cumulative time, resources, skill and manpower was to create a vast elaborate spiderweb of a conspiracy tapping into all facets of the very fabric of society whereby they will replace the now recently deceased McCartney with either someone they've gotten to win a lookalike contest, a a McCartney doppelganger, or even a CIA clone. They will be chosen to impersonate, live as, and, you know, be the real Paul McCartney. You know, it's obvious, right? This allowed the money-making machine that was the Beatles to carry on, and through this fake fall, Paul, the cabal would attempt to utilise the Beatles' mass pop culture appeal to spread their evil agenda even further. However, the wonderful Macca-esque counter melody to all of this is that the three remaining Beatles and possibly the fake Paul himself acting as a double or even triple agent decided to subversively fight the system and begin hiding subtle clues and hints that revealed the truth of the cover of Paul's death both in their music and on their album covers. Yes, this is all real, this is what we went through in excruciating detail in the last two episodes, this is what the conspiracy actually says, there's no talk about the collapse of Tower 7 or anything, this is just about people replacing Paul McCartney for the last 50 years. But you all know that already, it's just nice to set the scene. Now, before we get on with exposing the real truth behind this whole mess, let us first dispense with the housekeeping... HOUSEKEEPING Obviously, this is going to be a very long episode today, so I do want to keep this very, very brief. Obviously, firstly, as always, let me draw your attention to our Patreon page. Patreon is a site, a service whereby you, the listener, can sponsor a content creator, the content creator possibly being me, in a large way, in a small way, for any determined amount of time. And the content that I'll be creating is this show. I want to keep it free. I want to keep it ad-free Simply, if you want to help support the show, if you want to help us keep the lights running. Saving up for a new mic is something that I have been wanting to do for a while. I'm actually waiting for a new mouth guard to come in the post, actually. I don't know where that is. Hurry up, Amazon. But like I say, I do this show in my free time... I do work full-time the dream would be that one day I'd be able to have a patreon that would support me so I could do podcasting full-time I know that's a very arrogant very massive dream that only a very few people ever get to achieve but if you want to help me on my way there in a very small way obviously you can check out our patreon links below there'll be links below for all of these if you want to get in contact with the show the best way to do that the most intimate way is through our email which is simply at paul mccartneypod gmail.com I always want to hear your Paul McCartney stories either how you you know, first got into him, whether you've seen him play live, whether you play his music, whether a particular song means something to you. Obviously, I want to hear your reviews as well. Um, I'd love to hear some reviews of Tug of War. Tug of War is the album that we have coming up next. Let me know your thoughts on that album, whether there are songs I should be warned about or be particularly looking forward to. Also, you can check out our blog. Our blog is at paulmccartneypod.wordpress.com. You can also visit our blog, our sister blog, that's at paulmccartneypod.wordpress.com, and it's basically the place where I get to put everything that I can't quite turn into an episode just yet. Many of the blog posts do eventually go on to becoming episodes, so if you want to see some content nice and in advance, you can check out the blog below. Recent articles, I've been working on another trilogy, actually, of... ...posts whereby I will simply be giving a nice send-off to Wings, obviously on the show now, in the actual album review section, we have now finished doing Wings albums, we are now into McCartney's definite solo period now, and I basically wanted to categorise and calculate my entire thoughts on the band as a whole, in part one, I was reviewing the album openers and album closers... Best album tracks and worst album tracks, and part two, which I've just recently released as well. I've been looking at the best Wings singles, the best A-sides and B-sides. Part three will probably be just their best albums ranked in order, and any other categorization that I can think of at the time when I write that one. I'm also going to be releasing blogs on the best Paul McCartney songs that are conjoined songs, songs where he's gotten two separate tracks and merged them together as well as a look at the marketing behind Paul's 17th album, Egypt Station. That's one I'm very much looking forward to releasing as well. Check out links down below. Same as our Twitter, that's at McCartneyPod. You know what Twitter is by now, surely. It's the best way to get in brief, fleeting content with the show, and it's the best way to keep up to date with all the show's updates. I like to try and post there as often as as I can. Once again, I've, I've been neglecting the Twitter somewhat to get this show out and ready. But hey... After today, I can finally relax and start posting once more. Also, you can find our Facebook and our YouTube down below as well, or simply by typing in Paul McCartney Pod or Paul McCartney Podcast. You can find all of our episodes for free on YouTube, and I post everything that I post on the Twitter, on the Facebook as well, if that's more your jam. Also, finally, finally, as I beg every week, if you could simply go onto iTunes for five minutes and leave us a five-star review, that would really help boost the show in the ratings and in the rankings. Not sure how it, how it all works, but I'm told you're supposed to say it as a podcaster, so thank you if you can spare five minutes and check out our iTunes page. Okay, now that we're done with all of that corporate nonsense, let's start to wrap this shit right up and bring some closure to this 50-year-old conspiracy. In this final episode, I'm going to be getting down off the fence of impartiality, and thank fuck for that, because my poor acting skills really have not been working in my favour for this series, because it's really hard not to have passionate opinions on this story for either side, really. In addition to going through the entire history of how this conspiracy started, the real conspirators, even a bit of armchair psychology, I will finally top things off after being so quote-unquote unbiased for the first two instalments, let you know my own personal opinions on Paul is Dead. Shall we? Part 1. The Bad, the Ugly, and the Bullshit. Why the theory is bullshit specifically. So, now that we have pontificated, theorised, and wildly speculated on the various clues and theories that this story put forward, It's time to set the record straight and start coming down hard on the side of the truth as opposed to just letting our imaginations run riot. Yes, this is the party pooper part of the series whereby I intend to suck out all the fun and mystery and whimsy out of this fantastical story because being right is far better than being happy. Am I right? Come on, let's be real here people. Let's cut the bullshit out really, really early and let's be really real on the real planet Earth. I already made it clear that I am more than up for a grand old conspiracy theory. I love digging deep into this kind of stuff and indulging that little part of my brain that likes a bit of fun. But there has just been so much bullshit being stuffed in my face in this series that I can't swallow much more of it any longer. The idea, the notion, the very thought of replacing Paul McCartney with a lookalike and or clone for the express purposes of either controlling the public consciousness or continuing the Beatles money train is is frankly ridiculous don't get me wrong it's a fun conspiracy and like i said i probably more so than the average man get one hell of a kick out of endlessly discussing the minutiae of conspiracy theories you know i'm talking the disclosure project i'm talking madeline mccann the 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 titanic the federal reserve bank the mothman freemasons you name it i've dug deep and had fun reveling in the worlds of the mysterious and the unknown But that's all it is, it's just a bit of fun a bit of fun that has clearly gone too far for some people in this case and there are clearly far too many people who are unable to see past the novelty of this rigmarole, ah well Sam, I hear you say, that's just what they, you know, the ever-present they, want you to believe the powers that be, the sinister cabal who control everything, want you to think that the whole idea is ridiculous and you know, therefore you are a shill playing directly into their hands, or maybe even you're part of them maybe, but as Carl Sagan once said on the topic of the existence of the divine and I think I'm paraphrasing but it it goes along the lines of extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence and the simple fact of the matter is folks I have simply not been presented with enough cold hard evidence evidence to convince me after hours and hours and days and days trawling through books and the internet and scrawlings on toilet walls there has not been one piece of credible truth or half-truth that has genuinely made me question my perception of reality now for those deep into the conspiracy i am now basically this promoter of the new world order i have been paid off by the quote-unquote cabal to debunk the conspiracy etc etc But I wish that was the case, because I've just come across this loony shit in my own time and wasted a lot of my own precious life on my own terms, for free. I wish I'd been paid off. I mean, we all came across it in our own time, but some of us looked at the evidence and said that it simply didn't add up. Some of us did. Those are the people I'm going to be addressing today. But, come on, there are just far too many caveats and coincidences and fortunate clauses that keep the whole conspiracy running smoothly and I'm simply here to challenge all of that. Don't believe me? Well in an effort for this episode to be the ying to the yang of the last two I'm going to point out all the faults in everything that I did and basically show you that I wasted all of my time going into such detail in the first place. Let's start off with the basics. The means. First off, there is, of course, the means. This conspiracy already makes some pretty big logical leaps and bounds with the very notion of the ability to pull this scam off in the first place. We have the mundane technological anachronisms such as futuristic plastic surgeries that could barely be successfully pulled off now, let alone them. The possible voice-changing surgeries that have never been heard of before or since. The Men in Black supernaturally efficient cleanup up crews that, and their ability to hide Paul's body from the media and the world without a trace. And we move right on up to the ridiculous with the insinuation of possible cloning in the efforts to make a second McCartney. Now, call me an old fuddy-duddy, if you will. Call me an old conspiratorial stick in the mud. Even call me old-fashioned. But what I am not is a fool. Yes, cloning does exist now, and plastic surgeries are advanced, and there are technologies that can alter voices, and there are those weird facial mapping things that can do all sorts of fuckery. And yes, we even know that the government does actively hide certain advancements in technology for political and military-based tactical reasons. But you will find me hard-pressed without anything other than crackpot hearsay, whispers, second-hand accounts and rumours to believe that there has been anyone other than the real James Paul McCartney in the media as I've been shown him today and as I will see live on December 16th. Yeah, I'm going to see Paul McCartney. Before I go on, though, I will reiterate that the idea that the CIA, MI5 and other agencies using body doubles has not been completely debunked, and one should not throw the baby out with the bathwater in that regard. I mean, on the other end of the scale, this whole Paul is dead thing could be a counterplay by the CIA to discredit the the very notion of doppelganger body doubles. So be wary of that one. Moving on. Look, to even humour the notion that this conspiracy would be financially viable is it's so highly questionable like it wouldn't be financially viable from the outset and it certainly wouldn't stay financially viable throughout the years because paul is just becoming less and less relevant as a you know an impactful member of pop culture you know he he just doesn't have the same impact he does in 66 so for the cabal to endlessly fund black ops money into this project for no reason other than to allow Fall to carry on living his life, marrying beautiful young women and having a wonderful family life and being a wonderful philanthropist. And basically just carry on making albums more for himself than for mass pop appeal. It just makes you wonder, you know, what's what's the point of this conspiracy? Like, did they just do Fall's face and just kind of let him run and do his own thing? Now they couldn't do that. They couldn't just let it be. So, no pun intended. They would have to keep this up. They would have to maintain it until Fall died, until the conspiracy the Kambal would allow him to die. And, you know, we, we all know about government black ops and, you know, how Fort Knox doesn't have any gold in it or anything, but I doubt that that really went into Paul is dead. If Paul was still number one, if he was still raking in the cash like he was in the way that he, you know, was in the 60s, not from, you know, selling tour tickets for hundreds and hundreds of pounds, but just from downloads and album sales, then maybe this would seem a, a little more plausible, but... Despite appearing on Kanye Records, Paul just isn't relevant now, is he? Bad Conspiracy 101. The second major point I want to highlight is just how poorly constructed and overall fucking bad this conspiracy actually is. If you were to take a look at the number of people that should actually know the truth about Paul is Dead, i.e. the cabal, the cover-up teams, the Beatles themselves, and in theory, if everything went to plan, and then plot that against the number of people that actually do now know about Paul is Dead, the Paul is Dead conspiracy, and the mystery surrounding it... And then the whole thing just devolves into a mockery of everything that it is supposed to be. How is this even listed as a conspiracy anymore? Because I think there are more Beatles fans that actually know about this now than ones who don't. I mean, who does this supposed imaginary cabal think they are? Like, I know we addressed the scapegoat that the conspiracists like to put forth. In that it's possible that the cabal are either so secretly lofty or above us that they just don't care. Or they're trying to actively flaunt their power in front of us. But that is just a classic God of the Gap's logical fallacy whereby any contradiction to the theory or any use of common sense that would challenge it is immediately met with a clever clogs comeback to shoot it down. There can't be any cracks. It has to be 100% Paul is dead or nothing. Almost like some five-year-old kid who doesn't want to admit he's just been shot in his own game. I got you! No, you didn't! Look, the conspiracy is a joke. Everyone knows about it. Nothing has been kept secret, and nothing has changed at all. This cabal is comically bad at putting forth their agenda in a genuine secret way. How many people by now know that that the three surviving Beatles were leaking all these clues as well? And there were seemingly no reprisals for this at all. With all the Beatles continuing to leave clues in all of their work for around four years unmolested, and even supposed clues in their solo work as well. We know that the Beatles were supposedly doing this, and the Cabal know that we know this. Meaning that either the Cabal does not exist, or they have the most lax corporate policy enforcement of any organisation I've ever seen. Forget Spectre, forget Hydra, these guys are amateur. Whatever happened to, this organisation does not tolerate failure. Like. The Beatles' money could not be so valuable that they would replace Paul in the first place but so unimportant that they would allow the band to publicly flaunt it and risk everything. Now this is where the Paul is Deadheads will eventually come around and mention how Lennon and Harrison were eventually killed. But this is really a stretch as their deaths were in the 80s and 2000s respectively. Again, meaning either these deaths were completely unrelated or the cabal is extremely lazy and lacking in motivation when it comes to its satanic assassination business. Whistleblowers. I mean, even the very method of disseminating information on the truth of all of this is highly questionable. I understand the setup, sure, but it's still based on such a logical leap So firstly, we have the possibility of The Three Beatles and Mr Shears Campbell all thought the best and only way to safely spread the truth of the Paul is Dead conspiracy was by way of a series of ever decreasing credibility clues on album covers and in the music and in backwards masking. The fact that the internet and mass media exists and yet someone somehow hasn't just come out with the truth or leaked some sort of document in one way or another is very suspect. If it were true, it wouldn't have needed three scousers and a fraud hung in music for it to get out. It would get out. It simply would. What's even stranger, and this is a point that no one seems to address, is that it's the Beatles alone who have been disseminating the information to the public. It comes straight from the top, from the horse's mouths. Literally, there is no one else. There are people who spread the rumour, of course, and those who make lots of money off of it But the only clue masters, the only dungeon masters controlling the pieces are the Beatles themselves. And yet there hasn't been a single other person who's come out to back it all up. No one who worked at Apple, none of the Eastmans, no one from NPL or Capital or the rest of the fucking music industry. No one from his family. No one. Fucking no one has come and backed this shit up. I mean, you know what, let's just take a quick moment, a little aside, to, to listen to what Mike McGear, a.k.a. Mike McCartney, a.k.a. Macca's brother, had to say on the whole matter.
0: Michael McGeer, uh, what do you think? You've heard all the clues. Is your brother Paul McCartney alive? Uh, well, can I just say that, firstly, I don't want to really rip you to shreds, because that would be <laughs> stupid. Because, it, you know, there's nothing to rip to shreds. First, I found it very embarrassing that, you know, that you were just saying now. But the worst thing I found that it was boring, that last, however long that talk, was a very boring piece of television, television is to entertain, and that was fantastically boring, you know, for the simple fact that it has no basis, no uh, factual backing up, you've got nothing at all to base it on. It's just a fantastically uh, contrived piece of press material, which you're making a television debut, and you've, and I've, I've seen people make, um, personal appearances, talking about the subject, they're taking money out of these people's pockets, out of, on, a, on a very bad, and, you, and the people at home there, out of their pockets for a very bad piece of, uh, it's something even entertainment, you know, if it's, if it's funny or it, it's a good song or something like that, great. But when something's being conned, I think I think it's very. You poor. think it's all a hoax, Michael?
2: <laughs> no, I think he's dead, all right. <laughs> <or either. laughs> the proof. That's the proof you <laughs> Yeah, yeah.
0: Oh man, it's really it's it's terrifying how you know that you get away with it. Yeah. Well, I, I think <laughs> the point at which it uh, the point at which it becomes interesting is that um, uh, it, it is it is an American phenomenon. I don't think that the British people would do this with this kind of a story. It was, it was on once because on the news that America had said something about uh, a beetle being dead. It was on once on the news that How I... How is it handled in England? I'm it confused. was once on the news. It was right. uh, from 6.50 in um, There is a report that uh, beetle Paul McCartney has died in a... Uh, da da Good night. Neither. <laughs> I go on. That's that's correct. Okay. I mean, I think it's absurd to to assume that uh, Paul is dead. The thing that interests me about it is the fact that the uh, the Beatles undoubtedly have been um, the prime movers of this decade. They're the most influential people in the world, I think, right. in the '60s and. Uh, the way that America has responded to this absurd rumor of Paul McCartney's death. But you don't you see you're, you're, you're uh, assisting that rumor and you're you are advancing it. See, For I, your didn't, own good. I didn't make it up. I'm not advancing it. No, but you, my, even in not making it up, you're still perpetrating the whole thing, still keeping it going. It's a hoax. It. It's a con, which mm-hmm. you are, are on this television set taking valuable entertaining time game. out. Uh, of uh, yes. when Mike could be done a couple of jokes or Douglas could be Do you singing songs. Every, you remember the remark of Mark Twain when a report got out about uh, Mark Twain having been uh, uh, dead and finally they reached him in those days and he said, the report of my death is greatly exaggerated. <laughs> <laughs> I think yeah, all said it's, that all stood out, almost that when, when, when was the, was l- me, when was l- the last l- time you saw your brother? The last time? Yes.
2: It was his funeral, I think. <laughs> <laughs> You know, there were loads of people in the comments and quite a few Paul is Deadites on the internet who actually looked at that clip. And when they heard Mike McGear's own kind of witty put-downs that were kind of mocking the very notion of the Paul is Dead conspiracy without actually going, frankly, going, you know, Paul is alive and he gives sarcastic quips and stuff. They actually took that as Mike McGear actually admitting that Paul actually was dead. But, you know, think about it. You would need to silence many more people than just Mike McGear. The sheer number of people who have had to have been silenced, coerced, bribed, or beaten into submission... For this to have stayed secret makes it very unlikely that something of this cultural magnitude would have remained a proper secret. Yes, I know, there are real conspiracies like the Bay of Pigs and the Lusitania and the Gulf of Tolkien and 9-11 and Area 51 and Lady Diana, Princess of Wales and all that malarkey. It does prove that some conspiracies are real. And things are always being hidden from us. But there isn't a single credible, irrefutable whistleblower, a single witness. No one coming out on their deathbed saying, I was the plastic surgeon, or I helped bury Paul McCartney. A single photo, not one document, not one credible testimony. Nothing, nothing on this entire affair. It's incredibly pathetic. Next, the music. So, one of the claims that the Paul is Deadheads tend to point towards is that Paul's public songwriting ability was significantly reduced after his supposed death, and that Fall was simply not able to recreate the heights of Paul's Beatle output. Well, firstly that problem is twofold, firstly some of Paul's, if not most of Paul's big hits were post-1966, I'm talking, Hey Jude, Let It Be, Blackbird, or even Get Back were all written after he was supposedly beheaded which would have been very difficult indeed. There is an excuse banded around the majority um, on these forums that many of Paul's songs were actually penned and already written earlier in his career, and then they were simply released later. Yeah, maybe you could apply that to When I'm 64, But it's just another example of the whoops, I got you, no you didn't mentality of these conspiracists. Yes, yesterday is one of Paul's true greats, but are you going to look me in the face and say that you're going to take Maybe I'm Amazed, Mull of Kintyre, Goodnight Tonight, Another Day, The Whole of Ram, The Whole of McCartney 2, The Whole of Band on the Run, Chaos and Creation in the Backyard, Flaming Pie, All of Wings, All of the Firemen, Twin Freaks, the lot of it and claim that it wasn't all clearly written by the same man who did not die in 1966. One of the biggest smoking guns of this whole conspiracy, and again, this is something that never gets brought up on these forums, is the fact that the songwriting of Paul McCartney, for better or worse, in its composition, in its structure, its theming, its melody, its signature, has been one of the most consistent elements of our entire universe the tide goes in and out, the sun rises in the east and sets in the west, and Paul McCartney writes Paul McCartney songs. Tell me, if Billy Fall, Shears Campbell did, in fact, take over as Paul McCartney, then how has he been able to not only top Paul's songwriting of the Beatles period from 1962 to 65, but also manage to help establish and maintain one of the most unbroken and consistent songwriting canons in the history of songwriting? I mean, just look at... When I'm 64, Maxwell Silverhammer, You Gave Me The Answer, Ballroom Dancing, Average Person, or English Tea, some of the most nichely naff and twee and cliche and cheesy and divisive songs ever written, you look at me right in my fucking pupils and tell me that they are not all written by the same dorky man. I love him, but it's true. Only a single, particularly lame individual such as Paul could ever be so obsessed with something so naff for so long and continue to release it to the public in utter spite of its lack of commercial value. The fact that Paul has just released Come On To Me and I Don't Know, two of the most stereotypically Paul McCartney songs ever written, is incontrovertible proof that it is the same man that wanted to write show tunes for his dad back in 61. Also... If the cabal have been trying to control us through Paul in this messianic way, then why is Paul struggling to make it even into the top 100 these days? Even with the assistance of the very real music industry elite, Paul is struggling to remain relevant, like I say, and has done so pretty much ever since the breakup of the Beatles. Yeah, he still commands a vast audience of listeners, and he sells a lot of tours... But much of the excitement and the buzz surrounding him is for his back catalogue than anything else, and he rarely wins over brand new fans with brand new content. If Fall did have the backing of the almighty, all-powerful Cabal, then wouldn't he have achieved a little more commercial success in the pop charts in recent years? As they would surely have tried to have, you know, to keep up the process of implanting us and subliminally controlling us with more low-frequency energy and bad vibes and shit. Or did Fall get replaced with young blonde women who dance around with the Eye of Horace? Who knows? The effect. In working out the real goals of the Paul is Dead Cabal, and what the point of all of this was, we really have to stop, take a second, and look around to see what the supposed effects may have been. Well, since 1966 we've had economic turmoil, giant forest fires tearing across the globe, oil shortages, terrorism, war, religious strife, racial divisions, LGBT discriminations. We are ever reliant on television, mass media, the internet and prescription medications and overpopulation is basically threatening all life on earth as we know it. You know, the list ever goes on. But was any of this brought about by keeping Paul McCartney alive in the 60s. Okay maybe my point is a little bit of a stretch there but Paul is Deadhead seemed to be lacking any actual motivations behind the decision to replace Paul McCartney in the first place. If it was purely for the money like we've mentioned earlier then I can see your point slightly more. I mean the Beatles are still one of the highest selling acts despite having broken up in 1970 both in terms of merch and record sales shockingly But surely that's still a pretty big leap as this cabal is surely either infinitely rich anyway or doesn't care about money anyway because they're too busy wearing goat's heads and fucking in orgies. And how much more money can this cabal be making from the music industry? Is the cabal made up purely of CIA and the music industry? Or does the Illuminati have a music industry division? It's beyond implausible really and it's the best shot this bullshit had. But then after that, it starts to get increasingly oddball, as it does theoretically metaphysical. Indeed, many of the Paul is Deadites, with a kind of conservative Christian xenophobic undercurrent, claim that the cabal would try to spread dangerous ideals into society. These elements would include the pro-drug message, the spread of Eastern customs and religions, anti-religious messages, and an anti-authoritarian dogma. All of these factors would be things often associated with the Beatles in pop culture either way. But rather than just absorbing the very obvious impact that the Beatles had on the world, the Paulies Deadites think they are very clever for spotting these very clear hallmarks and incorporating it into their conspiracy rather than just accepting it as actual history. These oddly reactionary fears expressed through the conspiracy reflect the fears of the establishment at the time of the Beatles, rather than any fringe member of society now. But yeah, they don't like foreign ideas, and they seem to like a Christian, conservative, drug-free America. Again, this wouldn't be the same if the conspiracy came from any other country, and it's a clear indicator that the Paul is Dead rumour could only have manifested in the way it did in America. Another of the major things that the cabal tries to spread, and this is a phrase you come across constantly with these Paul is Dead heads, The Illuminati are very concerned with not spreading government propaganda or mind-control devices, but the spread of bad vibes, negative vibes, evil energies, negative auras out to the populace of the world. You get an awful lot of new agey types within the conspiracy community, as they are both kind of fringe groups who feel oppressed by the establishment, and... with the Paul Dead community, there is this awful spidey sense I have whereby you feel the people who believe in this crap also believe in the healing power of crystals, aromatherapy, dream catchers, smelly candles, astrology, chi, energy, spirits, souls, and any other old poppycock that they come across. But the most obvious piece of evidence against the fact that the Illuminati were spreading these bad vibes, unless they were so subliminal, is just the fact that the Beatles music is amazing. I'm sorry, there are no negative vibes to be had here at all. The Beatles music is young, it's pro-drug, it's pro-freedom of expression, it's pro-freedom of choice, it's pro-freedom from oppression, it's pro-free love, it's pro-happiness and anti-work and... And fuck you, really, if you think that it provides anything other than the best vibes for all the people of the world. And then, finally... We have the only possible narrative that can make any kind of sense, you know, if it were true. But the thing is so abstract and fantastical in both its conception and execution that it cannot be disproved nor proved. Again, showing us how cult-like and religious the dogma of this whole Paul is Dead thing is. The idea is that the cabal would use four and subsequently the Beatles' music to subliminally spread their message. Government programming, political ideologies, satanic sermons, beams that will turn us into corporate, mindless slaves. And, you know, yeah, this totally doesn't sound like the ramblings of a paranoid schizophrenic at all. But, like I say, if this were true, if these subliminal messages were in there, their effects are so minimal that we haven't noticed. Consistency. The final nail in the coffin with the Paul is dead conspiracy is a simple one. It's so obviously a patchwork conspiracy. And what do I mean by that? Well, ultimately this conspiracy, far more so than any of the other big conspiracies, is clearly made up from an innumerable amount of different sources, from different times and in different places. Whilst all conspiracies on some level are a communal effort, Paul is Dead certainly feels very disparate and hodgepodge, leaving the main story without a definitive canon or a definitive series of events. I know I'm having a pop at this stuff by comparing it to a religion, but this is the one case I wish it was actually more like a religion. I would really appreciate a Paul is Dead Bible to set several of the elements of the story straight. The lack of a consistent narrative put forth by the conspiracists mean that the evidence often clashes, dates don't match and, along with other inconsistencies, make the Paul is Dead conspiracy simply too infantile and lazily put together to ever take seriously. Like, if all of this evidence were true, then it would have been proven to be true by now. And knowledge of it being true would be widespread. And don't fucking tell me that it has been proven because it hasn't. Don't be a stubborn denialist giving me that, Oh Sam, even if it was proven, or even if there was an inquiry, it would would be suppressed. It's just bullshit. So many people have a personal and financial and emotional stake in Paul McCartney, and people would have exposed it with some more hard-hitting evidence by now. And anyway... Wouldn't the statue of limitations on files concerning Paul's dead activity have been released to the public by now? Where's all of that, eh? The photos. Then we have the overwhelming amount of quote-unquote photographical evidence that Paul was in fact full and the cracks in the conspiracy come forth in his complexion or features on his face and outside of wanting to have fun with the you know backwards audio on the records it was this side of the conspiracy more than anything that inspired me to make these podcasts in the first place because I'd just seen so many I just thought you know what it's time I have to address this I have to get this off my chest frankly the supposed evidence that we are supposed to be able to see in the vast array of Paulie's dead before and after photo fit comparisons is just non-existent, isn't it? Yes, in some of the photos Paul indeed does look a little bit off or a little bit imperfect, shall we say, but who doesn't look a little bit different from photo to photo? And forget the time factor, I'm just talking from photo to photo in a single day. The sheer innumerable amount of variables that can affect the look of a photo is mind-boggling. Shadows, lighting conditions, uh, angle type of light, Time of day, facial expression, type of camera, these are old cameras and old lenses, let's not forget. The subject's physical condition at the time, flash or no flash, they all contribute in warping the image more than we might come to expect. Also the production process of the photo may have, may have been damaged as well, that's always a possibility. Like, do we really have to sit here and explain that if you stand facing at a slightly different angle, at a slightly different time of day, that your face is going to appear fucking different. I shouldn't have to. I would like to respect my listeners more than that, but I guess we have to live at the mental capacity of the slowest, most delusional Paul is deadites in society. Then you take all of those factors and then throw in the fact that Paul has indeed been aging over the last 50 years, and that the majority of these photos in these before and after Paul is dead comparisons have like a 10 year gap between them. And you can just see how open this evidence is to trickery and misidentification. I don't know about you, But unless you're Halle Berry, Gwen Stefani, Helen Mirren, or Michelle Obama, then you're going to age, noticeably, especially over the amount of time that Paul is Dead is dealing with. You know those videos on YouTube where people take a photo of themselves every day for like two years? Even in those there's some serious and noticeable change that takes place from person to person no matter the age, the gender, the place of the world. If you take a photo of someone 10 years apart with a different camera from a slightly different angle under different conditions, then yeah, you might see a difference. Whenever there's a single difference in Paul's face, whether he gets a bit droopier, a bit saggier, any wrinkly lines, any crow's feet, any loss of tension in the skin, any hair discoloration, it's not aging. It's just the cracks in the fall makeup illusion breaking down, or it's the CIA clone malfunctioning. You know, it's just the makeup coming apart at the seams. It can't just be an old man aging. No, we have to ascribe it to the conspiracy further to reinforce it and in doing so it just makes the conspiracy look more ridiculous. And on top of that, on top of all of that shit, how many of you out there have actually seen James Paul McCartney? I don't mean live at a show or on the telly, I mean seen him up close in the flesh, met him up front, passed him by on the street, had some sort of interaction with him where you could assess his face and download it into your brain from your eyeballs. Yep, I bet it's fucking none of you, or a a very small percentage of you. And even if you caught a fleeting glimpse, you probably don't have the crystalline clear image of the man that you might think you have. And since you're not with him day by day, you don't particularly know what you're looking for in terms of ageing or how he would look any different over a period of time. And even fewer people know how he was ageing from, say, 1963 to 1966, up close, up till the accident, and then 1966 onwards, post-accident. How many people out there really know those details for sure? You can't be sure and any assertions to the contrary is just a lie. The face we see before us, the face that I'm going to go see on December 16th Yeah, I'm gonna go see Paul McCartney is a real man's face that has been aging realistically over the last 50 years. Paul doesn't look his best, but he doesn't look fucking bad for his age either. And annoyingly, that's probably down to that vegan bollocks he's into as well. What all the photographs are is a violent reaction from the conspiracy in its death throes to the fact that Paul is in fact alive and walking around. The whole shebang is basically based on the idea that someone or something replaced Paul in 66 and Paul in Defiance keeps looking exactly like himself as he is wont to do and now anytime there is a minor imperfection in his appearance he's judged for it. Almost in an oddly inverse situation to a female singer being judged on her physical appearance. This factor is also a symptom of our obsession with paparazzi and celeb culture in general, as papers are always looking for that candid shot of Paul where he doesn't look his best, and then in turn the Paulie's deadheads will turn this into another fall situation. Joy of joys. The voice. And finally, we move on to the topic that particularly irked me. The whole over-analysis and inspection and looking for things that aren't there, found in Paul McCartney's voice, both his singing voice and his interview voice, his real voice. And... Fuck me, was this one a stretch? The truth is, folks. Once I had all those interviews lined up before the fact, whilst I was about to write my notes for the episode, I knew that I was going to have to put on a real facade uh, just just to get through it. Because I knew I was dealing with one of the biggest dog turns I've ever had that I've ever had to wipe off my mind's shoe. It really doesn't hold up, does it? I, I don't think this part of uh, the episode it featured on absolutely convinced anyone at all. No, the audio recordings are not full, they're not Billy Shears, they are just, in fact, Paul McCartney. The major problem with this theory, again, is that it starts with the presupposition that Paul is dead in the first place. And once you've crossed that kind of idiotic, ideological boundary, then it is impossible for you to interpret the stimuli of Paul's voice to be anything other than fitting the pattern of Paul already being dead. Any stutter, stammer, any misquote, any poorly recalled memory that Paul is want to do, every offhand comment and sore throat isn't just the natural fluctuations of people's voices and the way they change over time, it is the fact that the CIA operative and or clone and or doppelganger is being a bit lax on his acting impersonation skills. (sighs) And what's weird for me is that some of the very things that people cite as being clues as to what is giving away for impersonating McCartney are actually some of the very things that define Paul McCartney's speech more than anything I think people kind of pretend that Paul didn't speak the way he did before 1966 like you know when Paul does his you know and like he scratches his nose and stuff that's just something he's always done maybe he didn't have as much uh, airtime on his own but you know in 62 when the Beatles first came out but he definitely still spoke exactly the same way like, the Paul McCartney voice has been one of the most consistent things in the Beatles. Like, all of the Beatles have had consistently iconic voices for being the Beatles. Not necessarily because the voices are iconic at all. But everyone could do an impression of Paul McCartney. And that's because the voice has never changed. There was never a moment doing this where I thought, like, oh, that, that wasn't Paul's voice. That wasn't the same man. It's always sounded exactly like the same guy. Yeah, maybe some of the recordings weren't perfect but nothing stood out. Please write in at paulmccartneypod at gmail.com. If you ever did think that anything that I showed you wasn't the real James Paul McCartney speaking, I'd be surprised if any of you were convinced at all. I certainly wasn't trying to convince you, no matter how much I tried to say I was being unbiased. Then we move on to all the nonsense about his singing voice as well. And again, this is simply variance. The fact of the matter and the dirty little secret of the music industry is that many of our favorite artists just do not sound the same live as we expect them to. Yeah, it's just not the same, is it? Things change. You have to accept that. There is massive variance. We're moving out from the safe, controlled confines of the studio out into the real world. It gets a lot more complicated. Then, throw in the fact that Paul has not only aged over the last 50 years, you know, with his throat surely aging with him, Throw in all of that sweet Bubba Kush weed he smokes and all of that constant strain he puts onto his vocal cords through singing and is it any surprise to anyone that Paul's voice may not be exactly the same as it is live as it is on record? And anyway, back in the Beatles days with songs like And I Love Her and Till There Was You Paul wasn't necessarily exactly happy with the way his vocals came out and so he electronically altered them. So what we think we know as Paul's vinyl voice may not even be his real voice in the first place. So wrap your heads around that one. The variance live is, is just too massive to ever really quantify live. Just look at George singing live in, in Japan on his, on his last tour with his massively strained voice. You know, that doesn't mean he's a clone or a doppelganger or anything. And then throw in the fact that the Beatles studio wizardry was so perfect anyway that it's rare that we ever really heard a raw McCartney vocal in the first place. So it's just completely unquantifiable to to say what a voice should or shouldn't sound like, regardless of whether it's Paul's or not. Patient Zero. What arsehole started all of this crap anyway? This is the part of the show where we are finally going to peel back the curtain, swallow the red pill and cut all the bullshit, and simply list all the facts, as is end of. This following segment will reveal the true origins of Paul is Dead, and then we will muse a little on how this collection of manic so-called clues could ever have grown into the titanic bloody mess that we've been detailing over the last few hours. The radio broadcast. Like most tales of this scale, it can be tracked back to a single source from which it was able to grow forth and multiply. This original utterance of the theory was spoken during a phone call into a university radio program. This original utterance of the theory was spoken during a phone call into an American university radio program. The call was a student from Eastern Michigan University named Tom Zarski, who rang a Detroit radio station on what must have been a very slow news day on a Sunday afternoon, October 12th, 1969. The DJ who took the call was a man named Russ Gibb, a man now synonymously infamous with this whole story. Little did he know, but that day was to be one of the biggest of his entire career. The caller, Tom Zarski, was very clearly uneasy from the get go, and there was this definite frantic air of someone on the run. Right from the start, this Zarski character lets Gibb the host know that it's only a matter of time before the authorities or the cabal or the lizard people catch up to him and trace the call, and in a deranged rambling rant akin to a homeless man at the back of the bus, details the foundations of the Paul is Dead conspiracy. There's the use of backwards and hidden messages, the hidden clues on album covers, the lot. After many years of never really talking about it in interviews, Gibb discussed the entire scene in an interview with BBC Scotland in 2014. He said, Some young kid called me from one of the universities and said, I heard that Paul McCartney is dead. And I said, no, no, no. I hear rumours about every rock star that they are either dead or that they're a doper. Most of these things are just rumours. PR rumors to get publicity. And he said, no, no, if you play a record backwards, you'll hear them talking about it, the Beatles being dead. I said, what, playing the record backwards? And he said, take number nine, number nine, number nine from the White Album and play it backwards. I said, you're kidding me. But then I played it backwards, number nine, number nine, number nine, where a very pronounced English accent says number nine, number nine. And it very clearly said, turn me on dead man, turn me on dead man. Turn me on, dead man. Well, that floored me. That absolutely floored me. So when I came back on the air, the phone lit up like it was a Christmas tree and all of our lines were jammed. And then I got on a special phone line that we had with the manager of the station and he called me saying, what are you doing? I said, I don't know. We've hit something, a nerve, and the kids are all going crazy calling me about playing records backwards and clues on record albums. And he said, I don't know what you're doing, but keep doing it. I had been in London and I'd spent some time with Eric Clapton, who was a good friend, and I called Eric in London, and I said, Eric, have you heard about it? There's a rumour going on in the United States that Paul McCartney is dead. And he said, no, what are you talking about? What? Paul McCartney is dead? I said, yeah, they've got it in a record, they've got it on so forth. And then he said, wait a minute, he said, you know, come to think of it, I haven't seen Paul in about a month and a half. And that did it. After that, all hell broke loose. And from there on, the conspiracy began to spread and from there on it began to spread. Why? Because it was juicy, that's why. It's obviously a very fun concept that lights up certain parts of the imagination and it's incredibly interesting to talk about. Except it's not fun for everyone. Not for the OGs and for people like Tom Zarsky because the thing is, these people who rant on about Paul is dead, who come across like paranoid delusional weirdos with certain personality disorders, may in fact act that way because many of them are paranoid delusional weirdos with certain personality disorders and the conspiracy and conspiracies in general, like I say, do attract certain personalities like that personalities that are already prone to mind-altering shifts in reality and worldviews. perhaps many people who are prone to one conspiracy are prone to many they deep dive down the rabbit hole and there's very little chance of returning and these people are the real preachers of this ridiculous faith and they are the ones who then subsequently spread the rumour across a wide variety of radio stations and they tell their friends and they post videos on YouTube and they put more articles out in newspapers and stuff like that It's all over the internet but they all owe a debt to those original first DJs and journalists that picked up the story back in the late 60s The next major shifts in the Dead conspiracy went from radio to print form as many articles started to circulate about the conspiracy the first of which was run by Illinois University's student newspaper, The Northern Star. The article was called, Clues hint at possible Beatles death and was released September 23rd, 1969 by a man by the name of Tim Harper. This article was the earliest example of, of someone actually going the extra mile and putting this crackpot theory to print. Well done there, Tim. Now, as is common with conspiracies like this, especially with one so young, the allure of more clues and more content quickly fell upon Harper. The problem was, He was a bit of a sham who kind of did it for a laugh, as you will find out that most of these people do with this conspiracy. But once the rumour began to pick up traction worldwide, he actually achieved a fair bit of notoriety for being the first true Paul is Deadite. Another local paper, the Des Moines Register, reported that Harper had been paid for many interviews in several states and that on WLS TV in Chicago they had even chartered a private plane for him so he could appear on their morning talk show. Which is hilarious really because he really was a hack and didn't even own any Beatles albums. Once it had all died down a little bit and he'd flogged the horse somewhat and milked it for all it was worth, he was quoted in the Des Moines Register, October 23rd, 1969, as saying, It was just a joke. I was the first one to put it all together. I knew that when I wrote the story that it wasn't true. Oh, sorry, Paulie's deadheads, um, stumbling at the first hurdle there. Article B! Though perhaps the article that did the most to propel the Paul is Dead rumour was the one written by the University of Michigan student named Fred Labore Labore's article appeared in the October 14th, 1969 edition of the Michigan Daily, the University of Michigan's newspaper, just two days after the Tom Zarski call to Russ Gibb. Set with the task of writing a review for Abbey Road, Labore due to a mixture of writer's block and a desire to create something a little more unique for the reader, wrote a sardonic tongue-in-cheek obituary of The Beatles. Even though it's not the first article to write about Paul's rumoured death, Le article was very important because it fleshed out several aspects of the story that kind of made Paulie's Dead what it is today. Many of the elements of the rumour that we've been repeating countless times during this trilogy were products of Le imagination. He created the identity of Paul's replacement, William Campbell. He created the whole walrus thing and the fact that it was Greek for corpse. And I think he was the first guy to mention the hands above Paul's head as well. And then you find out that Labor's one was also a joke. Clearly, the thing we have to learn from this is that bored humanities university students with writing assignments for newspapers are a force to be reckoned with and should be watched a lot closer yes Labor also was writing a very sarcastic knowingly silly article he made up the clues and those clues have become gospel for many paulie's deadheads and he must be laughing right now when you find out that again and the other major article in the conspiracy was a joke it points out that the people who are into this thing into the paulie's dead life have no sense of humor and they have a feeble enough mind or lack of inquisition to believe fucking anything They can't believe that the facts being presented to them can be presented with irony or sarcasm or dual meaning. The whole conspiracy by this point is just one big joke and those who believe in it are the walking punchlines, aren't they? We also learned that anyone out there with a desire to stand out from the crowd, who wants 15 minutes of fame, can just become a Pauli's Dead shaman and just lure that pre-established, built-in audience at any time. Whether it's a, you know, whether it comes from a genuine place or a financially motivated one, anyone can just hop into this Paul is Dead story, follow the ebb and flow of wherever the river of bullshit's going at the time, and make a pretty decent name for themselves. Beware of Paulie's Dead-eyeds bearing gifts. That's all I'll say. Like all far-fetched tales, there is indeed a nugget of truth to this whole malarkey that sets off the chemical chain reaction that results in the conspiracy that we have spent so long discussing here today. Concrete facts and hard data have mostly eluded us for the majority of this episode or episodes, but a couple of relevant incidents did in fact take place, like in reality and everything. As you heard from the subheading, there was not one real-life car crash that was used in the formation of this conspiracy, but two. So we're going to pluralise this bitch. And we're already getting great value for money out of reality rather than any fiction. The first of these crashes, and the most minor in impact, both literally and historically, took place on the 26th of December 1965, whereby McCartney lost control and crashed his moped resulting in a chipped tooth and scar on his top lip which he details here. And this quote is far too long for me to do in the poor McCartney impression that I do and in an episode trilogy whereby McCartney's voice is being questioned and fake McCartney voices are being mentioned, I think it's best to stay away from it all in all. Uh, The quote details, We were riding along on the mopeds, I was showing Tara the scenery, he was behind me and it was an incredible full moon, it was really huge. I said something about the moon and he said yeah, and suddenly I had a freeze frame image of myself at the angle to the ground when it's too late to pull back up again. I was still looking up at the moon and looked at the ground and it seemed to take a few minutes to think, ah, too bad, I'm going to smack that paper with my face, bang. There I was, chipped tooth and all. It came through my lip and split it, but I got up and we went to my cousin's house. When I said, don't worry Bet, but I've had a bit of an accident, she thought I was joking. She creased up laughing at first, but then she went, HOLY! I'd really given my face a good old smack. It looked like I'd been in the ring with Tyson for a few rounds. So she rang for a friend of hers who was a doctor. He came round on the spot, took a needle out, and, after a great difficulty threading it, put it in the first half of the wound. He was shaking a bit, but got it all the way through. And then he said, oh, the thread's just come out. I'll have to do it again. No anaesthetic. I was standing there whilst he re it and pulled it through again. In fact, that is why I started growing a moustache. It was pretty embarrassing because around the time you knew your pictures were getting winged off in teeny bopper magazines like 16 and it was pretty difficult to have a new picture taken with a big fat lip. So I decided to grow a moustache, sort of a Sancho Panza, mainly to cover up where my lip had been sewn. It caught on with the guys in the group. If one of us did something like growing his hair long and we all liked the idea, we'd all tend to do it. And then it became seen as a kind of revolutionary idea that young men of our age deliberately ought to grow a moustache. And it all fell in with the Sgt Pepper thing because I had a droopy moustache. The effects of this accident can be seen as clear as day in the Beatles music videos for Rain and Paperback Writer, with the director trying to find ever more things to cover up Paul's face than in that scene in the Simpsons movie where they try to cover Bart's wiener on his skateboard. The only problem with this moped crash and the way that it fits into the whole conspiracy is that there are no references to mopeds and none of the clues ever point to a moped being involved at all and it definitely seems like a certain blending of this accident and the following one is what created the final conspiracy. You'd think one vehicle crash with Paul McCartney would be enough to carry this conspiracy on but no, there was a second crash with McCartney, this time with an actual car. On the 7th of January 1967, McCartney's Mini Cooper was involved in an accident on the M1 motorway outside London, as a result of which it was written off. However, the car was not being driven by McCartney at the time. It was instead being driven by a Moroccan student named Mohamed Hajij, and McCartney was not present at all. Hajij was an assistant to a London art gallery owner named Robert Fraser. But, rather more famously amongst certain circles in London's swinging crowd, he was the guy to hook you up with the best damn Moroccan weed and hash going. So, Frasier and Hajij turned up to a party at McCartney's house on the evening of the 7th of January and were later joined by the likes of Mick Jagger, Keith Richards, Brian Jones and an antiques dealer named Christopher Gibbs. And in the way that these things do, the party then subsequently decided to head to Jagger's home in Hertfordshire. before then moving on to Redlands which is Keith Richards' Sussex mansion, McCartney travelled with Jagger in the latter's Mini Cooper whilst Hajid drove in McCartney's Mini. Now this is where things do get a little bit admittedly fiddly because there are discrepancies in the truth of this conspiracy, mostly due to the Beatles press office trying to save face and one story simply has the Mini that Hajid was driving simply crashing on the way to the party. Other stories have him going to pick up weed for the group and that's why he was separate from everyone else. Uh, Others have him doing all sorts of unscrupulous and crazy and zany motives. But regardless of the specific scandal, the fact of the matter is is that Hajij crashed McCartney's Mini and was hospitalised with some serious injuries. The heavily customised car was highly recognisable, obviously, it's Paul McCartney's Mini. And so naturally, rumours began circulating that McCartney was the one who been taken off to hospital and that he'd been killed in said accident because McCartney was not present at the scene. And it was from then, on that cold January 7th night, that this content was born that I was able to milk for you over three episodes. However, the Beatles' press management got involved, like like I said, and and they basically just tried to downplay the whole thing, and you know they didn't really want to talk about who was driving McCartney's car and why, or why it was involved in an accident or not, or why he was there in the first place. They they just kind of tried to brush it aside to save a bit of face, and why wouldn't they? You know, obviously for PR reasons, they don't want the Beatles being connected to a story of excess, drunk driving, um, drugs and let's not forget this is the 60s and possibly the having the connection to a Moroccan man as well might also have inflamed some parts of british society also what didn't happen was um, a supernaturally efficient cleanup crew arriving on the scene to sweep up everything before anyone would have noticed there were actual eyewitnesses to the real crash they were everywhere people saw the mini that's why the rumor started <laughs> so there, there would have been one eyewitness for the actual car crash that actually killed Paul McCartney if it really happened there just would have been and yet in the conspiracy no one was ever there to see this supernaturally fast cleanup crew that took McCartney's beheaded body away yet in real life when there is no conspiracy except for the fact that Beatle management are trying to save a bit of face we actually do have eyewitnesses and, and yet that's not enough The point of all this of course is that yes, there were in fact real car crashes, but it's easy to see how the real life events are the cornerstones from which the wider conspiracy is built. It is these snippets of reality that allow the conspiracists to blur the lines between reality and fiction. If there was nothing true, then it would be even more derided and and unformed and without shape. But if you hook a few suckers in with a few real life events that is the key to slowly start convincing them with ever more silly pieces of evidence on, You know, on, on the greater fringes of reality. It's like that whole thing whereby if you put a frog in boiling water it'll then immediately jump out because it, it, can, it can feel the great temperature difference but if you put a frog in cold water and slowly heat it up it will kill the frog as it cannot feel the slow change in temperature. Now. Now, just as a brief aside, I would not recommend that anyone at home actually try that experiment. Don't worry, the research has been done. But yeah, I think this whole segment is basically just another case of real life being a bit too boring for these conspiracists. The Missing Beetle. I mentioned in part one of this series that there was indeed a factual conspiracy whereby John Lennon, George Harrison and Richard Starkey went behind Paul McCartney's back, even going so far as to supposedly forge his signature to hire Alan Klein, the obviously retrospectively shady figure, as their manager. Now as a result of all of this, as well as the already present violent tensions at Apple, Paul decided to upsticks and begin his never-ending life's quest to find the ultimate escapism from Beetledom. He took Linda, he took the kids, he took Martha in a kind of pre-Wings tour, all up to the famous ram farm up in Scotland. Paul's isolation from the rest of the world was, in hindsight, probably the best move for the young hot-headed Beetle, as remaining in the maddeningly confrontational environment of Apple could have escalated to a much more figuratively or maybe literally bloody end to the Beatles. The wild country was a quiet place, a contemplative place, where he could get away from it all and just kind of let life happen around him. You know, he could just shear some she, milk some cows, ride some horses and roll around in some meadows doing very McCartney-esque things. Most importantly, he was literally under no pressure to do anything for anyone. He was already isolated from the other three Beatles, You know they had already gone behind his back and hired Klein, Klein didn't particularly like him or the Eastmans, there were no plans to record another Beatles album or a tour, so the only people he had any reason to be around was his family and that's the way he kind of liked it. And, as detailed in the incomparably funny and biting series The Thick of It, if you do nothing, if you say nothing, if you make no statement at all, you are always at risk of that silence working against you and instead of holding up a blackout you are creating a vacuum of speculation where a monster of a rumour can grow and feed and wander unchecked, doing damage that can never be undone. Not only had Paul left swinging London, the centre for media and newspapers in the country but he had left all civilisation altogether and this meant for the first time in years he was in fact not available for interviews, TV spots, radio appearances, quotes, photo shoots, photo ops, tabloid snaps or even autograph signings. And there was no Comic Con back then either. He was truly off the radar and this was the perfect place for a death rumour to be born. There was no sign of him, there was no way to get in contact with him and no one could confirm that they'd seen him for a while. Remember that quote from Eric Clapton earlier? He hadn't seen Paul in a month and a half. By all measure of measurable measurements, he was, for all intents and purposes, dead. Paul was indeed dead, to the public anyway, but not in any way that this conspiracy would have you believe. It's hard to believe it looking back, but the actual pressure of this rumour built to such a genuine point of people being actually concerned for Paul's safety as well as you know, mixed with the already avaricious media that were always looking for the next McCartney interview, actually led to a bunch of journalists from Life magazine deciding to write their own hipster coming-of-age will call road movie where they tracked down McCartney to his hideaway home in the Scottish Highlands, directed by Greta Gerwig, 2020. And of course, this was still the time before the internet where Paul couldn't just post an Instagram picture and be done with it there needed to be some sort of visual confirmation put the world at ease from a credible source. This encounter was the one whereby, if you remember all the way back to our second episode, Ram, which you should totally go back and download if you haven't already, is the one whereby McCartney bursts out of his front door and he's very angry that people have actually tracked him down. He's, he's in a rage and he accosts the intruders and shoves them and shouts them off his property and throws water over them and Woods McCartney had kind of calmed down and come to his senses and started putting his clever media cap on, he gave an exclusive interview in exchange for all of the photos of him being all pissed off, being destroyed. Again, looking back, it is hard to think that anyone ever took this thing seriously, seriously enough to actually ask Paul McCartney himself, is quite staggering. I can't believe this meme took on such a life of its own, especially before the internet, like I, like I just said. And it's very, very clear that the interviewers wanted to ask Paul about this Paul is Dead stuff from the get-go but you know nothing about Abbey Road or Let It Be or anything just straight into the Paul is Dead stuff and Paul said in return "Perhaps the rumour started because I haven't been in the press much lately? I've done enough press for a lifetime and I don't have anything else to say these days. I'm happy with my family and I will work when I work. I was switched on for 10 years and I've never switched off. Now I'm switching off whenever I can. I would rather be a little less famous these days. What I have to say is all about the music. If I want to say anything, I write a song. Can you spread it around that I'm just an ordinary person and want to live in peace? We have to go now. We have two children to look after. A little further down the line, possibly as a part of the promotion for Ram or McCartney or something, uh, Paul was asked once again about this so-called death rumour in an article for Rolling Stone that ran on April 30th, 1970. What do you think of the whole Paul is dead affair? I can't understand it. First, someone said, there's a rumor going around that you're dead. My first reaction was really just to think, great, really? Just like James Dean. I immediately pulled myself back to that 15-year-old suburbia where I saw the James Dean thing enact itself. I was just pleased, you know, because I knew I wasn't dead. So, I just watched the play happen. The only time when it got unfortunate was when we got up to Scotland. People weren't content with watching the play enact itself. They wanted to come up and involve themselves in our time. I lost complete track of what I was saying to them, but I'm sure you understand. Did you find it in Scotland that it got to the point where you didn't find it humorous anymore? Oh no, I never really. I got it from the office the first time and and someone said, you're dead. So I thought, well, that's funny. That's James Dean, blah, blah. And then I forgot about it. Then I saw it in a newspaper and I thought, well, that's still amusing. I got to Scotland and then people began to interfere because in Scotland, people stick out like sore thumbs. And if they're press men, reporters, they stick out like even sore thumbs. And then, if they're ugly press men, then forget it. And they were, you know, generally speaking. So it did get to be not funny. But I can laugh about it now, folks. Well, what's the moral here? It's simple, really. If there are rumours about you being dead, just do a live broadcast or something and just get it over with. Because we don't want another one of these starting. Even though there will be one. Fueling the fire. One element of the story that we haven't touched on is how complicit the real, alive, not dead Beatles were in helping propagate the Paul is Dead rumour even further. Like the saying goes, there is no such thing as bad publicity, and any conspiracy that will A get people talking about the band, and most importantly B makes people buy records, play them backwards therefore scratching them only for them to go out and buy another one is marketing genius at its finest. And for you to look at me in the podcasting app i and say that no one at apple wasn't already one step ahead of the game then you simply don't know how big business works i mean one of the big ones we have today is you know whether lady gaga or kanye west or jay-z beyonce rihanna or tay tay or justin bieber are all in the illuminati because like sometimes on stage or in their promotional material they'll be like some illuminati or occult symbolism and guess what they're not if you were in the Illuminati today and you were a, a performer, the worst thing you can do is make the Eye of Horror symbol on stage. It, it It's hardly very subtle, is it? Oh, but Sam, they're flaunting their power in front of us and showing us how they can... Oh, shut up. Shut up. Look, yes, there are cabals of businessmen who help each other out politically, financially, and, you know, in business, but it's got nothing to do with eyes and masons and pyramids. Yeah, yeah you know, there was that whole bohemian grove thing but i think that's quite benign the fact that you don't have to like ascribe like a religious cult to it like you can just have businessmen out there working for each other but the whole point of this is is that every time you run around there screaming that you know beyonce is in the illuminati and making a compilation video making a blog post about it you're just helping the commercialization of illuminati imagery and you're getting people to talk about the band and talk about the artist and you're getting them to watch their new video or check out Iggy Azalea's new shite single. It's just how business works. They're getting you hyped up about something. It's just advertising. I'm sorry. And with that being said, duh, of course the Fab Four were fueling the rumour. It has been proven that they all knew about it, but it's not like they will ever admit to it, save maybe, you know, the last survivor on their deathbed. But it would be very unlikely for them to actually not know what was going on They all knew they could drum up even more publicity and exploit it if they wanted to. But Paul is a genius with the media and it's kind of fitting that he is the one who would have died because he's the one who can just drum up the most publicity in that way being Paul McCartney somehow. Now I'm not saying the Beatles did it for the express purpose of selling records but I'm definitely saying Apple didn't put a stop to it for that very reason. The Beatles themselves probably did it just for a bit of a laugh, just to fuck with us, just to see what they could get away with, how far they could push the conspiracy. Maybe just test the waters to see how crazy the fan base really was. I mean, they've had death threats by this point. They've had people rush them on stage and crazy letters and stuff. And I'm sure they've been shot out on stage at this point. So maybe they were just testing the waters of crazy. So maybe they were just doing experiments on the crazy. That is the Beatles fan base. But if it was about selling records, then that would be selling your soul to the cabal, if you ask me. My own personal theory is that all four of them would swear that they would never give the game away and this would just be the biggest game of poking fun at all of these nutters that would ever get involved. And in the same way that the Beatles always had fun messing with people, both fans and higher-ups alike, this was just another extension of the kind of cosmic joke that... (sighs) The guys that we all love talking about are just four normal guys from Liverpool and this is just something that kept them amused at one point and has just been extrapolated and grown and uh, been channeled through history to be apparently this big significant thing that probably should have just been a little fun trivia piece in a Beatles book somewhere. Look, they weren't trying to create a grand conspiratorial narrative like I was saying, You know, subliminal messaging was something they just had fun with. Backwards masking it is something that they also had fun with. And they were just incorporating all of these silly offshoot elements into their grand works. And they are little flaws that always kind of shows what the Beatles could get away with at any point. And if the Beatles eventually grew tired of it, you know, like Lennon coming directly out with, the walrus was poor and, you know, trying to put an end to it, they really kind of were reaping what they had sown. Because you can't kind of start and inflame and fuel a conspiracy to the point where people start to believe it and then get bored of it yourself and try and distance yourself from it once it has grown past something that you're able to control which is unfortunately what they did do is what they are still doing and is what happened i wish paul and Ringer would just kind of come out and say that they knew that they were fucking with us all along and put it to rest perhaps maybe there's some like legal issues that would prevent them from admitting to the conspiracy in that way i don't know but If they did come out, it would crumble the lives of so many Paul is Dead career hacks and that would just be hilarious. Or you know, they could just turn around and say that Ringer was also replaced and he's just as much of a shill as the rest of them. The verdict. Man asks himself a question to get the segment rolling. So Sam, what do you think about this Paul is Dead conspiracy? Did you ever believe it? And what are your closing thoughts on the matter? Well. Firstly, let me say thank you for that brilliantly well-worded question, well, three questions I should say, and I'll answer the first two for you now in quick succession. No I don't believe it, it's clearly bullshit, and no I never once believed it for a second, it's clearly bullshit. And now that we've got those pressing issues out of the way I think I can finally lay to rest and begin wrapping up this mess that I've gotten myself into once and for all. Paul McCartney for better or for worse, is still very much alive and kicking. If anything, he's healthier than ever, having given up on the siggies and going full vegan, possibly even giving up uh, drugs now as well. And seemingly his fan base is bigger than ever. There seems to be more interest surrounding him than ever. He's got an album coming out. He's going on another tour. This man is simply just not dead. This whole Paul is dead thing has now become a textbook example to test Whether someone has truly gone over the edge into the borders of what politically correct people would call Crazy Town. It's the flat earth for Beatles fans, yes. This Paul is Dead thing is just a wonderfully insane living manifestation of society's most eccentric, inquisitive and overly idiosyncratic members. Now buckle up kids, because this is where I'm going to go, proper armchair psychologist here. Uh, I'm going to risk it all, I'm going to lay it all out there for myself and see what sticks. But to me, the cultural historical layman, this whole Paul is Dead phenomenon seems to be the natural culmination of such mass hysteria surrounding four human musicians from Liverpool. I know I wasn't there, but it's just easy to forget how fucking balmy people went for the Fab Four back in the day. And this kind of mass communal rock god worship, culture god worship, youth god worship was completely unprecedented in the society at the time. And it's still resonating rather violently to this day. Yeah, there had been celebrities before, there had been musicians before, there had been Elvis, but the Beatles were just on another level, a level that has really yet to be beat, really. And there was no rule book to consult with what the result of such a cultural shift would be in the public consciousness. The Beatles were everything They were fashion, they were politics, they were music, they were cinema, they were lifestyle, they were a lifestyle choice, they were spiritual leaders, they were wise sages, they were revolutionaries, they were people's entire lives, they are still people's entire lives. So it's only natural that mankind would twin its new obsession with the oldest obsession that all of us secretly muse over in the dead of night, and that of course is the concept of death. It was only a matter of time before the idea of the Beatles and of death would become inexorably inseparable and all of our consuming, ever-thirsty obsessions with the Beatles eventually did create a symbiotic relationship with death in a certain sense, and that came out in the very striking Paul is Dead narrative. There is literally no element of society and of culture that the Beatles don't sink into. Of course there would be Beatles conspiracy theories, it's fitting that one of the biggest conspiracy theories is also a Beatle one. There is no member of society that the Beatles do not appeal to. And in that sense, they would also appeal to people who may or may not display paranoid, delusional, psychotic, irrational tendencies. It's not the Beatles' fault. I mean, yeah, they did court a certain amount of permanent mania in the public, but not in a literal sense. Um, there is a such a mass appeal to the Beatles that, of course, there would be enough people in the populace who are susceptible to believing in this kind of nonsense and spread it and add to the part of poo. And then with the advent of the internet, these people who were once disparate and rather alone in their beliefs are now able to convince themselves that there is a large, poorly-dead community out there who, just like them, have been able to see through the curtain. And whilst 98.9% of people will hear this conspiracy and then forget about it in about 10 minutes, there is that small percentage of the population who just can't seem to see past the joke, see past the gag... Um, it, it's all one big gag. Of course the Beatles conspiracy theory is, isn't is real. It's almost like a commentary on conspiracy theories that's just taking the mick out of how pareidolia and people's obsessions will find anything. Probably only the smallest percentage of clues in this conspiracy can actually be attributed to the Beatles themselves and the rest are just blanks that have been filled in by fractured minds shall we say. It could have been any of the Beatles, really. And I think history just chose Paul through random coincidence in the way that it's always done. Yeah, he kind of is the media Beatle. But if anything, if history was writing the story properly, it probably would have made more sense for this narrative to to come up with a John is dead storyline. But uh, going back to the missing Beatle part uh, of the show just a short while ago, it is possible that at the heart of the Beatles' cultural and spiritual powers... And in fact, in some parts, some deasons of the internet, the Paul is Dead conspiracy fanbase has actually fractured off into a John is Dead conspiracy narrative that goes all the way back to the front cover of Help, but that is another story for another time. When Paul decided to go up to Scotland, he basically severed this intangible connection that the public had with one of their gods. They were deprived of those constant media updates of daily sermons from their god who they'd had infinite access to for all of this time there had been nothing like this and now suddenly it was gone without a trace for some it was probably too much and following a certain kind of pattern recognition a lack of Paul could only mean one thing that Paul is dead hey presto Paul is dead basically what I'm trying to say in the most annoyingly self-satisfied university twat sort of way is that Paul did die, and that we killed him not literally but as a metatextual concept that was both simultaneously under our every whim and out of our control We killed him with our minds. And there we are, folks. We are fucking done. We have done it. Every fucking angle, every nugget of information that I could find that was remotely interesting. Paul is dead, is done, it is over, I'm never going back to it. But that doesn't mean it is necessarily the end of these conspiracy-based podcasts. In my hunt for Beatle conspiratorial content, I found a couple of other interesting little stories that... Uh, would be able to make wonderfully shorter single-part episodes. But before I wrap things up, let me just say one thing. Oh, I'm sorry, 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 sorry. I I'm aware that I've gotten very distracted with these bonus episodes and these side series. But poorly said specifically, because that was indeed meant to just be one episode, and we've kind of drifted away from the podcast's original focus, which was on the music and the albums of Paul McCartney. But the Tug of War and Pubs of Peace episodes are now at the top of my to-do lists. I'm not saying I won't be releasing other things, but what I am saying is that the lion share of my focus will be shifted towards those two albums until I exercise them out of my system and get it over with. They are long overdue. Yes, there is a whole spectrum of Paul McCartney content to cover, and on this show we are always experimenting with doing stuff that no one else is doing, and I'm more than looking forward to the next hot hits and cold cuts, the next video analysis, the next gig review, but yeah, I'm going to pull my finger out here and uh, get some music-based content back out there onto the streams. This has been Paul is Dead, folks. Yes, I'm sorry that the ending was kind of a bit of a downer. It is just all bullshit, I'm afraid. There is no moral. Some people believe this absolutely impossible-to-believe thing. I think I've deconstructed it pretty well. I'm sorry there there isn't a moral other than don't believe this horse crap. But hey, if the conspiracists can't be bothered to construct a proper conspiracy, well, I don't think I should give them a proper episode either. I'm not going to give them the satisfaction or the honour. Thank you so much for listening to Paul of Or Nothing. This has been the concluding trilogy of a much belated three-part series. I am, of course, your host, Sam Wiles. Check us out on the Twitter, which is at McCartney Pod, Let me know what you think about Paul is Dead. If you want to tell me in a bit more detail, drop me an email at paulmccartneypod at gmail.com. Find us on YouTube and on Facebook, simply by typing in Paul or Nothing or Paul McCartney Podcast. Check out our blog, which is paulmccartneypod.wordpress.com. Uh, the latest article that's just gone up is the 12 McCartney Commandments, which are the 12 ways that you can be more like Paul and live your life as a more holy member of the faith and of the flock. Please do check that out. I had a lot of fun writing that one. Leave us a five-star iTunes review, of course. If you can log on to iTunes and do that for us, we would appreciate that massively. And finally, check out our Patreon. I'm sure I bored you about it. Thank you all so much for listening, folks. I'm sure No Words is already playing us out right now. No more Paul is Dead. I hope you enjoyed it. I had a lot of fun making it, but it's been a long time coming. It's all bullshit, folks. It's all bullshit. Take it away, Danny.